Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, physical training has a lot of carryover to other domains of your life. It's why we push it a lot on the Art of Manliness. Come you become a better husband and father, a more productive worker, and a more disciplined student. And my guest today is a living manifestation of the multiplier effect that physical training produces. His name is Dan John. He holds silver records in the discus and highland games, and coaches and consults top athletes in the throwing sports and Olympic lifting. Dan also holds master's degrees in history and religious studies and was a Fulbright Scholar in Religious Education, and he teaches religious studies for Columbia College of Missouri's online schooling. And today on the show, Dan and I discuss how physical training can make you a better man in all domains of your life. We begin our discussion on how training has made him a better scholar and how his scholarship has improved his training. Dan then explains what shark habits are, how they contribute to your long-term goals, and how to develop your own shark habits. We end our conversation getting to specifics of strength training. Dan shares the top three mistakes he sees people make with their training, why you need to start caring heavy instead of just lifting heavy, and then why you need to put a premium on recovery. This episode combines both brains and brawn for a compelling conversation on being a well-rounded man. After the show is over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash danjohn, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Dan John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. I really appreciate you uh, asking me to be here. Well, I've been a, a big fan of your work. been following you on the interwebs for a while now with your writing about strength and conditioning on Testosterone Nation and other places. And we'll talk about your background, you know, in the introduction, we've got that taken care of. So one of the things I thought was interesting, I read in some of your books and some of your writings is that, you know, you were a competitive thrower, discus, all that stuff. What I thought was interesting, you competed like into your 40s, which I think is, is impressive. So, I mean, is that normal for throwing sports? And if not, what do you attribute your longevity to? Yeah, well, throwers tend to have a lot of longevity. Now, that's true. Having said that, I sort of lucked out in a way, and I'm going to tell you it was two things. First, I had a very active academic life. So, you know, I'd have to I'd get a master's degree. I'd go and go to the Middle East as a Fulbright scholar. I would, uh, I would teach full time. So I couldn't train, let's just say this, like the other guys, okay? I couldn't take six, eight-hour blocks of time out every day. That's part one. Part two is I had some injuries and some surgeries that literally took a year plus to recover from. My left wrist, for example, actually my left elbow took a while to recover from. I'm looking around my body doing the surgery, which is always a lot of fun. And I got great ankles, though. I got to tell you that. My ankles are fine. But one of the nice things about surgery and one of the nice things about these academic timeouts 
is when I got back in the training, I realized it's Pareto's principle. You know, it's the 80-20 rule. And I know it's a cliche in 2017, but it doesn't mean it's not true. And what I began to pick up on, yeah, you can work out for six hours, but then look at what you're doing for six hours. You foam roll for an hour. You talk to your buddy for 20 minutes. You mosey over. You take one throw. You walk out. If you only have an hour, you can't do all that. And so what it allowed me to do is it also allowed me to have my eyes a little bit wider. I have a different paradigm than people I competed against. Look, look, to be a good strength coach for a thrower, a football coach, it comes down to this. The power lifts and the Olympic lifts. Okay, good. So everyone does the power lifts and the Olympic lifts. Okay, good. Well, what if something really good is happening over there, but your vision is so tunneled, you miss it. And so because of my other experiences because of the injuries the wrist injury the doctor told me i would never olympic lift again i would never lift again with that left wrist now that's interesting because last saturday i broke some state records in our weightlifting meet so he might have been a little wrong he was he was right for most people but he was wrong for me so when i got injured i would have to look around and see how can i get around that and i think my entire career it's been based on not necessarily throwing out what works, but working with what works and then combining it with something that might be just as good without such a high, high cost. And, and then it was just remarkable in the, the early thousands. It was strange. About 2001, that's 2002, 2003 and 2004 were the best years of my throwing career. I was 47 years old. I was throwing marks. I was, you know, I was beating up very good college throwers and their coaches would yell at them. He's old enough to be your dad, you know, but why? Well, because I was, instead of just squatting, you know, set of three, rest five minutes, set of three, I was pulling sleds. I was doing wheelbarrow carries. I was putting on heavy backpacks and carrying rocks and trying new and different ways to build up a system to throw farther. And because of that, because of a little bit more general training, it allowed me to have a little bit more snap, a little less, I didn't burn up so much nervous energy, so I could snap the discus just a little farther than I was you know, a year or so before. That's awesome. We'll, we'll talk about some of your, you know, I guess, quote unquote, unconventional training methods here in a bit. Um, yeah, it's conventional. It's funny, 2017, everyone's gonna go, yeah, I, we all know that. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. My Globo gym has a wheelbarrow that we, we push around. There you go, yeah, yeah. But, okay, let's talk about your career as a coach. How long have you been coaching? Was this something you picked up, I don't know, as you got older in life and you thought, okay, well, I, you know, this is my career as a thrower is going to start winding down. I'm going to start coaching. Or have you been coaching even during the, the prime of your throwing career? So it, it doesn't seem that long ago to me. But in 1979, when I graduated from college, Coach Mond had noticed that the his – track and field athletes were starting to train like bodybuilders in the gym, curls, reverse curls, tricep extensions. And it really bothered him because he believed in the cleans and the squats, a little bit different than we do things now, but uh, he believed in sled pulls and stuff like that. But about 1975, uh, because of the Arnold, the educational bodybuilder, the, the, the worldview of weightlifting became a hypertrophy, bodybuilding. And so coach asked me to run his track and field programs, strength. 
And I got, to, I taught everybody, everybody, the Olympic lifts. I taught everyone what a squat should look like. And then if, and, and when we're done with that, I would say, you know, do whatever you need. But if you snatch and clean and jerk and front squat, you, you're not that interested in doing much more, to be honest with you. So I might've been one of the first strength coaches for collegiate track and field. Now, having said that, I've always kind of had my hand in helping people. My neighbors, I went back years ago and they said, uh, she called me the Pied Piper because I was always helping the young kids with stuff. And so I guess it's kind of in my blood a little bit. One thing when people ask me, you know, I want to be a strength coach when I grow up, and I always tell them, well, you could do, try my path, you know, get a master's degree, you know, teach high school history and economics and keep the weight room open for an hour every day after school and teach whoever walks in the door. Because if you only coach football, you only understand the needs of a football player, and there's nothing wrong with that. And if all you do is coach track athletes, you, your answer can be snatch and clean and jerk, and you're perfect. But if you coach a, <clears throat> a swimmer, a diver, a wrestler, your toolkit has to expand. Uh, you coach the 39-year-old you know, English teacher who wants to lose a few pounds. Your, your, uh, your toolkit, your quiver has to expand. So I, uh, uh, today I still coach. Mostly I, I, uh, a lot of the coaching I do now outside of workshops is consulting but every day at my house at 9.30, people from all over the world come to work out with me for free. Today we had a, I would say, a difficult workout. And you just show up and if you're working, say like you're working on a kettlebell cert, you got to do the snatch test. Well, today we'll, everyone's going to be a kettlebell trainee. You come in, another person comes in next week, wants to be an Olympic lifter. Well, today we're all going to help you Olympic lift. We call this intentional community. And the idea that all of us together is better than any one of us. And there are times where people come in and say, I'm just broken. Will you just, just help, you know, just help me. And so we'll do a lot more mobility or original strength that day. And everyone, so it's, I, I, I love it. I love what I do. I have a, I, I really like to coach people. Yeah. I love that idea. Um, you know, because we've had we've talked about the art of manliness before. There's a lot of men who are lonely. They don't have friends, and I think that's so important in your life. And you're like, well, how do I get friends? And like one of the things I do is just like get a squat rack, get some weights in your garage, and you instantly have something to do with a bunch of guys. That it's making you strong, you know, getting getting you stronger in the process. But like during the rest sets, you like you're talking, and what's amazing is guys like they want to do that. Like if you invite a guy over to like watch a game, most guys are like, okay, that's boring. I don't want to watch that. But if you say, hey, do you want to come over to my place and deadlift? You get three or four guys over there, and it's fantastic. I don't know if you've know the book Spring Chicken, but I think it's brilliant. And it comes down that longevity is based on a few interesting things. About a hundred minutes a week of exercise. I do that some days. Uh, some kind of fasting in your life. This is for longevity now. But the next two I want you to listen to. More coffee, more red wine. And the funny thing is they keep trying to break what's the magic ingredient of coffee? What's the magic ingredient of red wine? And I tell people this. It's not the coffee. It's not the wine. It's the fact that you're sitting with someone very often. Let's go get a cup of coffee. Let's, hey, I'm, hey, come on, I'm gonna get a cup of coffee. Hey, let's go out. It's the connections you make when you're with other people. And I think that's the key to longevity. I, I had a good visit with my doctor the other day and things are great. My LDL levels are wonderful. It makes me very happy. And my HDL is high and all, all those good things. But I, I talked to him about, I, 
I don't mind the fact that statistically I'll probably not be around a ton of time more because the tapestry of my life, uh, you don't see me, but I'm inner, I'm interlocking my fingers. The, the word fitness comes from the old Nordic word to knit. And I see a fit person as a knitted person. And I look at life as a, as a as, and I literally look at life. I got this from my buddy, Joe Cormier, as a tapestry all these different color threads woven together and something beautiful comes from it. And I keep trying to let my young interns, my assistants, my friends, my other coaching colleagues is I always ask them, how knitted are you? You know, how, what's your tapestry like, you know, cause if all you are is a six pack abs and you know, if you're married, you know, if you're divorced, your kids hate you, the dog growls at you. You're in my definition of fit. You're not very fit. If, if you, if this makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And I really love that idea. So let's talk about this. You've, you've coached lots of people, high school athletes. You said the English teacher wants to lose 25 pounds, high performance, Olympic lifters and throwers based on your experience of, you know, coaching these different types of people. What do you think makes an ideal like client, I guess, you know, what makes someone coachable? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, how do I say it? Nice. They do it. They, um, they they take what they take the lesson and apply it. It's the application that's the key. So I can tell you, I can literally take every person in your audience, and we can all go out in the field, and I could teach them stretch one, two, three, the basic four steps of being a discus thrower. And at the end of if if you had me for a week, you know, a couple hour sessions every day, I, I could teach every single one of you to be to throw the discus. And then I say, let's all come back in a year and see how we, we, we did. There's going to be a few who come back and they're going to take me aside and say, I like what you said here, but here's what I did. And, and then I noticed this and I looked on that. That to me makes a great athlete. The person who takes that, the foundation, the fundamentals, the basics, great coaching, great coach athlete relationships. Are, it's very much like making soup. I, I know that sounds crazy to you. But if you put that ham bone in there and you give it enough time and you take that bag of split peas and you put it in there and you, you give it time, you're going to end up with split pea soup. Now, I just told you that recipe, but this lady raises a hand and says, I added bay leaves that was even better. And this other guy over there says this. There's this great parable called stone soup. And if you don't know it, cut and paste it and put it into this somehow. But the let me tell you it, or I just want to just trust me on that. Just trust you on that. Yeah, I, I've, I think people are familiar with the, the, the kind of the basic thing, yeah. Yeah, but to me, the story of stone soup is the story of coaching, of great coaching. By yourself, all you've got is, all I have as a coach is a pot. You know, I've got this pot. <laughs> this is a weird way to explain coaching, but it's not bad. I've got this pot. You need to bring the water. Bob over there brings the split piece soup, as uh, the split piece. Edna brings the ham bone. And pretty soon we got this magnificent athlete. But you got to add to it yourself. It's how you apply the lessons. I got this really nice feedback from this, uh, the, this group of uh, military guys I work with. And they, to a person, were amazed at how much I did not tell them, do this. What I told them to do is I told them, here, Take this and make it better. 
And I think that's I think that's the key to what you called coachability. Right. So listen, but also take ownership and try to improve off of it. But isn't that true about everything? Right. I mean, let's talk about finances. You know, you have some great stuff at the Art of Manliness. On uh, you had one about in your twenties, your thirties, your forties, right? But you get back to it. Okay, let's be honest. If you're tw- if you're 18 years old and you put a thousand dollars into some kind of like thing like an IRA and never look at it again. When you're 60, 65, I'm 60, so I'll just, when you're 60, you'll get this little, nice nice little letter in the mail that tells you you're doing pretty good for your retirement. Little and often over the long haul is true in every aspect of life, uh, in love, in finances, nutrition, and yet it's so simple that people just wanna, that's why people don't always like to listen to me when they're young, it's because my answers are so simple, but they're not. They're, you, you take this idea, this foundation, and you do it, and you do it, and then one day you're marvelous at it. And people said, I think I, I, a couple months ago I was in the Atlanta airport Sky Club, and a guy turned around, <laughs> funny, where the soup was, <laughs> and the guy's name, and I looked at him, and I go, you're Gary Player, you, the, Gary, the great golfer. And he goes, and you lift weights, I thought, which I thought was fun. And so we talked for a few minutes. There's a story about Gary Player having a bad day one time. And he got really frustrated. And someone from the crowd yelled, I'd give anything for one of your bad days. And supposedly, supposedly, as we say now, he went off and said, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't swing a club until your hands bled. You wouldn't do this. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do this. And I've always t- taken a lot from that story because – Every person in your audience knows what it takes to be a great golfer, a great pool player, a great swimmer. But it's that ability to take it on yourself and dive in the pool each and every day and get those reps in. Yeah, and speaking of that idea of young people, you know, downplaying the the, lo- the long term. There was a great line in um, your recent book, now what, where you talked about how a lot of athletes they 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 overemphasize what they can do in a day or in a week. And really de-emphasize what can be accomplished in a year, right? I've noticed that in my own training where it's just like you have a bad day, right? It doesn't go as planned. You don't get all the lifts. And then you're like, you think it's the end of the world. But then you look back, it's like, well, I've added 50 pounds to my deadlift in a year. That's that's an accomplishment. You, you're very right. I was just down in Las Vegas doing a workshop for Nick Rains and Fit Rings. And I was telling a story about how I had this bad day at this track meet down at UNLV a long time ago. And uh, I look back now on the numbers that I threw that day and I think, you know, those were pretty spectacular numbers for a bad day. And of course you have to be 60 to look at back in your 20, 21 year old self and understand it. But you're very right. I argue that about a fifth year workouts are bad. I mean, that's just one of my little principles. So I tell people, you know, just you put your arms around a bad workout. In fact, welcome them. That means you're going to have a, a better one tomorrow at, statistically, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, my, I, I call my coach, uh, Matt Reynolds, he calls those like bad workout days. Those, those are your, uh, your hard hat and coveralls day. You just get in, you do the work, you clock in, you check out, you do it because you gotta, you're going to wait for the next time. 
I call those punch the clock workouts. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's <laughs> okay. That's funny. Yeah. yeah same, same concept. Yeah. So I thought this was interesting about you. Maybe we can tie this into your training as well. But you, you mentioned earlier, you were a Fulbright scholar. You went to the Middle East to study. I think it's a religion is what you were studying. Correct. I, I studied religious education systems. Yeah. Okay. So I'm curious about this because that makes you sort of a Renaissance man here. This guy throws heavy things, lifts heavy things, but also you're studying religious education systems. I'm curious, how has your scholarship influenced your training and coaching? And then here's the other one. How has your training and coaching made you a better scholar? Oh, those it's nice you put that together. Okay, let me just give you a real quick thing. In religious education, like all good education, basically it comes down to a few simple principles. First, you got to tell a story. You got to be able to tell a story. In fact, the word gospel basically means, you know, good news. You got to find out the news, okay? Generally, they follow it up with a a, uh, picture, show a picture. Now, of course, in this day and age, you can probably show a video, but that's not always been the case. You'll notice that most churches are covered with pictures that, that supplement the story. And then the third thing, at some level, they, they ask you to memorize something, whether it's the, the Pledge of Allegiance or the Lord's Prayer or the, the Five Pillars, something. And, and the idea is that you, you kind of join the club by understanding these basic, simple things that we do. Funny thing is, I just told you uh, how most of us coach sports, too. I'm very proud to be a Utah State University discus thrower. Since the 1930s, Utah State's been a, a leader in the discus throw. In the late 1950s, one of the young men, trying to beat his own brother, let his leg dangle out of the ring a little bit more. And everyone said it was unsound, but every single thrower at the Olympics last time uses a variation of the Utah State University technique. I can tell you our, our history, and I'm very proud of that story. Well, to understand what that leg looks like, well, you have to I could show you a picture of the wide leg technique. And then, of course, I could tell you stretch one, two, three and have you memorize that. So actually, my, my religious education background really helped me. It really helped me as a coach because it keeps me grounded that, you know, you're going to pick up a, you know, next year I have a whole new sophomore football team and I'm going to, I have to start off and I have to explain to them how we lost a football game one time because of this very simple rule. You know, the ends of the, uh, you have to have seven, you have to have at least seven men on the line of scrimmage and only the ends are eligible. One young man stepped back. So we had six, five yard penalty. We didn't get what we needed to get and we lost the game. I start with that story because what I'm trying to point out is what you're learning here on August 12th is going to be an impacted in what, November 2nd or 3rd or whatever. And, and so I still do that. When I coach someone, I try to tell a little bit of a story about why this particular thing, even though it might not seem very important today, down the line might be the key. Now, when you come to performance sports on my end, I have stories about showing up to track meets. not my fault. I mean, I was sitting in a, a van one time and I hear last call men's discus my coach had the wrong schedule. So I hear that and coach goes, why don't you go down and check it out? Thankfully, I brought my gym bag with me. I ran down. The head official said, we were wondering where you were. And I went, what? And I look around and everybody else is there. My first warm up was my first throw. 
My second throw was my lifetime best. I changed my uniform because I had a very nice family hold up a blanket while I put my uniform on for my street clothes. So when I say warm-ups can be important, but you might not always need them, I tell that story to explain when they call your name, you step, that's what performance is. When they call your name, you step in the ring, you step in front of the mic, you step on the stage and you perform. I don't want to hear about your excuses. So that's how those two things work. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And, and how is your, you know, being a discus thrower and a competitive lifter, how's that helped you with your scholarship or your intellectual pursuits? Well, first thing I would say is, uh, you know, I know what it feels to be in pain. Uh, I know what it feels to have a hard time sleeping. And yet at eight o'clock when the kids walk in the door, you, you teach. But my, my job is to, what the, the discipline, the discipline of sports, I think made me a very good academic. The Olympic, uh, the Olympic trials are be on July 16th at nine o'clock. Okay, you remember that, okay? July 16th, 9 o'clock. Okay, great. The final grades are due Friday at 3 o'clock. To me, I was never late ever in my entire career on grades, attendance, anything like that because I understood the discipline of of the deadline and how if I screwed up on the deadline, it hurts somebody else downstream. I I love that. It's fantastic. And and what I love about your writing, because you do get really specific with your programming and your training like that, but I also love about it, and what I I think I I get the most value out of, is just your your insights about discipline, about habits. And in this latest book, Now Now What?, you talk about there's different types of habits, four different kinds. What are those, and would you want to use one of those different types of habits at different times of your life or in different situations? Or Are Are we talking about the quadrants here? Yeah, yeah, you bet. Well, let's go through that. Okay, do you mind? Uh, it'll take a few minutes, okay? But Yeah, let's do it. Okay. The concept of shark habits comes from Rob Wolf. And we were at a workshop for the Navy, and he mentioned this, and I thought, this is the, that's the word I've been trying to use. A shark habit is, is like a light switch, off on. Here, let me give you the most basic example. You'll notice that when you email me, I email you right back. Because if I open an email, I answer the email. There is no, if I haven't been online in 12 hours and I open them up, I might have 100 emails. I will answer every single one of them. Because if I open my email, I answer my email. You're supposed to floss your teeth every day, right? You know that. So I keep floss sticks in that little cubby that's on the left side of the car. You know, my steering wheel is here. There's that little cubby down there. So I floss my teeth when I do errands. That's a shark habit. I buy four, five, six bags of of dental floss sticks. So I have them scattered all over the place. So I floss my teeth without even thinking about it. Shark habits. If we get a letter in the mail that's for a wedding and the bride asks for an RSVP, I call up Tiffany instantly and I say, can we make it? And then I say, yes or no. We pick whether we want filet mignon or tuna fish. And then I go online to where they're registered and I buy the present. Then I X out that box on my calendar and I don't, but we'll see what shark habits do. And you might miss this. Is it frees up brain space? I'm right now uh, talking about my schedule with somebody for the upcoming year. 
And I will give this person yes, no's on every single event and be done with it. Put it into my calendar. I've already got the workshop done, by the way, because that's the way my brain works. But the idea of a shark habit is that one bite and it's done. One bite and it's done. People make fun of me because literally I own 16 of the exact same black polo shirt. Why 16? Because that's all they had in North America when I bought them. I bought all 16 black polos in my size in North America. I have four pairs of the exact same jeans. In the book, it says I have four pairs of the exact same shoes. Now it's up to six because the company who made them is discontinuing that brand. I don't think a lot about what I'm going to wear. I don't think about when I should floss. I don't think a lot about, oh, uh, here's another one. I have a shopping list. I have a weekly menu. And I shop, I shop after brunch on Sunday. I shop to the menu. And I... Meals are made, meals are made mentally on Sunday. Uh, here's another one. I do white laundry on Monday, dark laundry on Tuesday, Wednesdays I clean the bathrooms. Those, I, so if I walk past the white laundry basket on Friday, I don't even notice it in my head because Monday is white laundry day. So those are shark habits, okay? And the more you can shark habit life, the easier performance and important stuff is. As we slide up, we then slide into what we call pirate maps. This comes from Pat Flynn. Now, Pat's idea is this, is that, like, you know, Josh Hills and I wrote a book, and I think it's really good, Fat Loss Happens on Monday, and it's a nice book, but most people just really want, just tell me what to do. Okay, pirate maps are tell me what to do. Okay, so this is how I prepared for the, the state record makers meet. Pirate map, okay, uh, just for more clarity, a pirate map says, go to St. John's Island, find the white coconut tree, take six paces to the, le uh, to the west, dig down six feet, and there's the, there's the treasure, okay? Pretty simple. So one, make coffee at night. So every night I'm, after dinner, I make coffee for the following morning, and basically I wake up when I smell the coffee, literally when I smell the coffee every day. Uh, it then says, honor the sleep ritual. My sleep ritual is this. I either sauna or hot tub every night and then take a cold shower. And that literally knocks me out as good as six bottles of scotch, I got to tell you. I take Before a hot tub, I take my supplements. So it's one, make coffee. Two, take supplements, hot tub, ice shower. Three, when I wake up in the morning, I take a moment to be grateful I think it's important because that starts me off on a good day. Grateful for my grandchildren, my daughters, my great dog over here, my wife, the, the house that I have, my friends, you guys at the Art of Manliness, all those things that, are, that make my life better. After that, I do a little app called One Minute Meditation. And I just, it's actually funny. I've noticed that by counting my breaths, if I struggle at all my breathing, I might be overtrained. The next one is this. Three days a week, I Olympic lift. Two days are front squats and light snatch and clean and jerk. One day is a little bit heavier snatch and clean and jerk. Two to three days a week, I do mobility work and a little teeny bit of hypertrophy work. That's how I prepared for the state record makers meet and a good meet. Because you're going to say, now wait a second. Oh, and the last one I forgot. I apologize. Eat eight different vegetables a day.
I didn't say eight servings. I said eight different vegetables. And what happens is this with my pirate map. Every time I go to make a meal and I seek a different vegetable, make sure I have eight vegetables in there, it makes my brain think about Olympic lifting, my position in the meat. And so when I make coffee, I'm kind of in the gym snatching. When I take my supplements, I'm clean and jerky. You follow how a pirate mat works? And if the bulk of the people we knew could just shark habit all the easy things in life and then pirate map the other stuff, everyone would have all their health, longevity, and fitness goals. But what they want is the other quadrant, which is called programs. My knock on programs and, and diets too is that this isn't a long-term cure. Now, I did the Soviet squat program when I had a problem with my front squat. And it's, it's, it's six weeks of squat hell, okay? There's a workout where you do six sets of six in the front squat with 80%, and it, it brutalized me. I, I, it really was hard. Most people look at our world of fitness, health, longevity, in one program, want a diet. And really, you know, as everyone knows, diets don't work. Appropriate eating does, reasonable workouts do. So I see programs and diets as these short-term fixes, okay? But if you take care of shark habits and you have a pirate map, so shark habits clears the clutter out of your brain. Pirate maps make you each day each day I'm going to do this, 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 and this. Not one of them is outrageous. Every one of them is reasonable and doable. But there are times in your life, you know, you want to lose weight, I guess, for the 40-year high school reunion. You, your daughter's getting married. You want to look better. You're getting married. You want to look better for the pictures. Uh, whatever. That a diet and exercise program might be a good idea. But for the bulk of the time, show up to the gym two to three times a week, get a little stronger, get sweaty two or three times a week, pirate map stuff, and you'll be a lot happier. The fourth quadrant is really prince, is, is really performance, and performance is based on principles. In football, 1931, John Heisman said, block, tackle, and fall on the ball, and you'd make yourself a great football coach if you stuck with that principle. You'd perform well. <laughs> the, the principle in discus throwing is throw far. And then I sit down after the meet and I say, did you throw far? If you say no, then I have this little called the why, 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 why matrix. <laughs> I keep asking you why until we find something I can coach you on to prevent that in the future and all my other athletes in the future from not making that same mistake. So those are the four quadrants. Shark habits, pirate maps, programs, and principles. If you're an athlete, shark habit as many things as you can in life. I shark, to be honest with you, I shark habit in my academics because I was paying for my school with my, uh, with my uh, athletics. Shark habit as many things as you can. Have some kind of basic pirate map. Now here's Coach Mon's pirate map. You know, lift weights three days a week, throw the discus four days a week for the next eight years. And of course, the prince, so shark habit, Pirate map, and the principle is, did you throw farther? If there is a glaring problem with you, we would slide down to a program. For almost every other person listening, 
You should shark habit so many things you can in your life. You know, I have so many checklists. I have a fall checklist, a spring checklist. You've had checklists on the Art of Manliness. I love those. You have the, the house maintenance checklist. Hey, why are you not using that? You should have a financial checklist. You know, and actually, and I would argue this, automate everything. Everything should be automated. I've been saving money for years. I never looked at it because it's automatic. It just comes out of my paychecks. But enough on that. If most people would just focus on shark habiting so much of their life and having this very simple pirate map that a good day starts the night before, I believe, always have. Get your get quality sleep, you know, darken your room, make it cool, all those things. Everybody knows about this. Everybody, as my wife always says, everybody knows this. Start your day with a moment of gratitude. Take a moment to, to calm down. You know, have some kind of exercise program. Two days a week, you're going to strength train. Three days a week, you and your wife are going to go for a walk before dinner. That's not bad. Eat, eat a vegetable. Eat a vegetable every day. Start there. Eat a vegetable at every meal. Go there. Eat eight different vegetables a day. So that's what I try to get across with my athletes. It's that simple. Hey, you know what's funny? It's that simple. And I mean that. But getting people to get that momentum, to just get going, and I'll tell you why. It's because they have so much clutter. They have too many unanswered emails. They have too many answered bills. They have too many unanswered this. They've got all this backed up. And honestly, sometimes the very best thing you can do for your health is to declutter all of your life. And I tell you, that has been a formula that has worked in my life over and over and over. And I think the other reason why people have a hard time with it is because, again, like we were saying earlier, they downplay what they can accomplish in a year and overemphasize what they can accomplish in a day. So they don't feel like they're doing so much now. They, like they, they, they look at the results like, well, nothing's really happening in my life. I've been doing it for a, a week. I've lost a pound, but that sort of fluctuates up and down. But they don't, they don't realize they keep doing that for a year, they might be back down five, 10 pounds. Oh, you know, the nice thing that I have going for me, and this might be unusual for a lot of you, I have been keeping my journal, my weightlifting journal since 1971. That's awesome. And so I can look back on me bench pressing 65 pounds for a set of eight. My, and I was supposed to go eight, six, four in the workout, but I felt strong, so I did eight, eight, four. I can look at that workout. Did you hear what I said about that 65-pound bench press? Yeah, 65-pound bench press. You know, I bench a lot more than that now. But what people miss is the next week I got up to 70 pounds, 85 pounds, 90 pounds. I remember the first time I benched 100. I thought I was a world killer. I remember talking to a teacher about how strong I felt because I benched 100 pounds. You know, but, you know, of course, my joke with my athletes is, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Of course, I wasn't the foreman on that job. Uh, but everybody, eh, eh, yeah. there's that great line in the Brothers Karamazov where Fa Father Zosissima is talking to the woman and she says, I lost my faith. And then she, and fa the father leans in and goes, well, how did you lose it? And she goes, you know, bit by bit. Then he follows up and goes, do you want it back? And she goes, yes. Well, you'll have to get it back bit by bit. You know, if you were the superstar, greatest shape of your life at age 17, and now you're 37 and you're 
in not very good shape. You got out of shape bit by bit for 20 years. So you have to give me at least two weeks to get you back in the best shape of your life. You know, at least two weeks. Okay, that's a joke. But you you get things, and I agree with your point here. Uh, you get back bit by bit. And I think that's the nice thing about where I'm at in my life. I'm age 60. I've got grandkids. Basically, I'm, you know, I'm basically retired, retired. I mean, but, you know, I still work. <laughs> I still work every day because I love what I do. And I'll, that will ever retire. But when people ask me about how, how did you, like, I write about two books a year. And they say, well, what do you do? You know, just sit down and write it. No, you can never write a book in what these people think you sit for 18 to 30, 40 hours in a row and write a book. It would it would be nonsensical. It wouldn't make any sense. You know, you write a book, you 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 work on this part here, this part here suddenly leaps off at you. Two weeks later, you come back and go, This is garbage. You rewrite it and it's better. What you thought was beautiful is awful. Yeah, you build on a book bit by bit. You know, it's like trying to Okay, you know, try, like trying to cook a turkey. You know, your wife comes home and she says, "Honey, we're gonna. We're, it's Thanksgiving Day. Here's a frozen turkey I, I cook. I bought at the store." And she slaps it on the table and says, "Cook that. We have family coming in an hour." Well, wait, what? You <laughs> you have a frozen turkey. You can't you can't cook. You can't unthaw and cook a turkey in an hour. You just can't do it. Maybe you can't. I don't know how to do it. But it, it's like. It's like making good soup. It's like making a good Thanksgiving dinner. Success in all fields in life is, is bit by bit. What Coach Mon told me, little and often over the long haul. So talking pretty macro here, let's let's get into like some specifics about training. Yeah. And one of the questions I always like to ask coaches is not like what what they see athletes do that is good, but like what do they often see are like the most common mistakes athletes make when it comes to their training? Because I often think that's more instructive than asking, what do they do well? Sure. Would you mind if I gave it in three answers, three parts? Yeah, I would love that. Yeah. Well, the first part, let's go from my world as a strength coach. The first problem is it's called, we call it look like, looks like Tarzan plays like Jay. Since 1975 or so, this, this paradigm of weightlifting is, has become hypertrophy bodybuilding work. So the, one of the biggest problems we have is that especially uh, the generation I, I, I was working with not a, lo- a while ago, they want to look the part. And yet looking good doesn't make the discus go far, the shot go far, you high jump higher. In fact, doing a bunch of curls might impact your high jump. Uh, so that to me, that to me is always been number one in the last decade. Now, 50 years ago, you know, they, I was told that weightlifting would make me muscle bound and all these other idiotic things. So 50 years ago, we were being told not to lift weights. Now I'm trying to tell people we need to lift weights appropriately to the task at hand. Number two, the second area I would look at is this, is the general concept of conditioning. And it gets down to enough is enough. People love garbage conditioning now. And it's that, and I mentioned it in some of my articles about that. Ever since the movie Rocky came out with that montage thing, dun, 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 you know, you're, you know, you're going to run around the block and then I'm going to high five you. You're going to high, and that's going to answer all racism on our team. It's going to deal with sexism. It's going to deal with all the world's problems because we had a five minute uh, running up and down the stairs high fiving 
And the truth is, you know, uh, <laughs> situational preparation trumps idiotic conditioning. So if your team never went through a two-point conversion drill and my team did, there's a good chance when, or what the overtime rules are or special situations of all kinds. And I think what's ha happened is that many coaches have fallen in love with having their athletes in, I'm a, I've got air quotes going here, in shape. And of course, it's always <laughs> in shape for what? Fit for what? The third area, the third area is a difficult one for me because it wasn't a problem for me. And the third area we have now is uh, the special, early specialization. And that comes from the helicopter parents mostly. Most kids just want to play and have fun. Uh, I told a story. It was my dad's anniversary of his death uh, a couple days ago. Do you mind me talking about this? It's okay. No, yeah, feel free. No, this has been this is great. And uh, I tell the story about it was 1977, and my junior college coach, Coach Lahati, came up to me kind of angry. And I'm like, he goes, Dan. And I go, yeah. He goes, you know, usually coaches who recruit my athletes speak to me first. And I said, what? I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, you know, after every meet, this guy, this little guy comes up to you, he wears a suit and tie, and he talks to you. I mean, generally coaches should talk, I mean, other coaches should talk to me first. And I go, what? I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. And he points over and goes, that guy there. And I go, I go, coach, that's my dad. And he went, what? And I said, I, well, here's the, here's the funny thing about the story. So I was at the time already, I'd lettered as a freshman. I was his most inspirational athlete as a freshman. This season, I was going to be his state champion in the discus, captain of his state championship track team, and his MVP. And he had never met my father. He had never met my dad. My dad would sit in the stands on his hands and just come up after very quietly and talk to me after every meet about how proud he was or, or some situation he saw in the meet and just said, well, oh, I have a good comeback or, you know, you'll get him next time or whatever. And my father wouldn't let us play sports until the ninth grade. And he didn't like us he, he, because he didn't want us to burn out. And I look back at my father and, and the lessons he taught me and he was right about everything. My biggest concern right now with these poor young athletes is, is that massive amount of burnout. So if, so if you look at it globally, what I said, I almost said enough is enough three times. <laughs> right, yeah. In regards to that, that last point, young people in athletics, they actually found studies that kids who specialize too early actually end up being worse athletes than kids who don't specialize. I mean, I, I, we had a guy on the podcast, Epstein is his last name, talk about it. He had a book oh, yeah, uh, Sports Gene. Yeah. Sports Gene. And he talked about, like, you know, you have these kids in America, they're going to these, you know, high-cost clinics and camps, and they're not making the pros, but then you have these kids who live in the Dominican Republic who they use a, ba you know, a, a lunch bag for a glove, and they're because they're just playing. Like, they're not, <laughs> they're just, there's no structure whatsoever. Well, think about how many more lessons I learned so we played street football, we played pickup basketball, we played, and here's the nice thing I learned. I, so I only played, you know, just pickup baseball games. But very often, like for example, you'd have, we used to call invisible runner on first. And then you had to call your field because there wasn't enough outfielders or infielders. And so you had to keep playing pitchers, pitchers' hands. So instead of first baseman, you throw it to the pitcher and the pitcher caught it. And so you're constantly in a, 
discussing whether or not the person was out or not, and you are compromising with the other team about where the rules should be. I learned so much more about humanity and sportsmanship by playing these friendly games. And I also, like I've joked many times, I probably also caught the ball 50, 60, 70,000 times in competition. I've probably thrown the ball as many times. Whatever, I just had more chances to play because we played every day. I mean, I didn't start throwing the discus until the ninth grade. And I never won one of those little, little kid regional things because those kids threw about 80 feet, you know. When in high school, you got to throw about 170. I love, by the way, Sports Gene. I strongly recommend the book. And I, and I, I loved it for one small little extra reason is I'm the youngest of six. And he has that great thing in there about how, how truly being the youngest of an athletic family, what a boon that is. <laughs> and I looked at that and I thought, I never thought of it that way because right. I was constantly <laughs> trying to ke- keep up, catch up. Uh, and I love the second point about this idea of just you have to get on the pain train in order to get in shape. And that's not true. You actually might be derailing your progress, thrashing yourself every single workout. That would, And of course, the downside of that too is now we've turned this back into theology. See, so uh, I work with people who are atheists and agnostics, but their paradigm for why they got out of shape is one of the two seven deadly sins, gluttony and sloth or sloth. Oh, yeah, I got out of shape. How'd you get out of shape? I just got lazy. Oh, sloth or sloth. Okay. Yeah, I eat too much. Oh, so you're a glutton. Yeah, that's the problem. So you don't believe in any of this stuff, but your your go-to answer for all your issues are the seven deadly sins. And, and, and that's just not true. And because the problem is, is this, and if you follow this across, the answer to those two things are asceticism, which is to become a monk. You know, I'm only going to eat one piece of lettuce every day and I'm going to run 300 miles a day to undo the damage of the last, you know, five years. That's just, to me, is insane. And getting back to our other principle that we seem to have in this discussion you'd be surprised how much you can do in a year and sometimes how little you can do in a day. But at the end of 365 good days, amazing things happen. So besides the, you know, the barbell lifts and Olympic lifting, I, one of the things you, you talk about over and over again in your training, which is different from a lot of what you don't see a lot of strength and conditioning coaches talk about is carrying under load or carrying load. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a hundred ways to do it, a million ways. You can do it as simple as pulling sleds or, pushing cars, or you can do farmer walks with, with heavy loads in both hands or single loads, what we would call suitcase carry. But that just comes from my experience. I, I couldn't believe the change in my throwing when I started adopting these. So in our gym, we, we put on heavy backpacks, we carry bags, we carry, carry anything you can possibly think of, barbells, kettlebells, dumbbells, farmer bars, Stu McGill went up to his, his lab up in McMaster and said, yeah, this stuff is better than most of the junk we do in the weight room. So what I did and if, is I looked and I broke, the, I broke the world of weightlifting down into basically six parts. And I call the first five the fundamental human movements, push, pull, hinge, squat, and loaded carry. And what I look for first is are you doing those? Most people do way too much push and pull. Most people don't do authentic squatting. Most people don't hinge well. And most people don't do 
<laughs> any loaded carries. So I'm a miracle worker the first week I work with you because I have you do some farmer walks and goblet squats and it changes your whole life. So, uh, and then of course, someone's going to raise their hand and say, what about this, this, and this? And that's what we call the sixth movement. And the sixth movement is everything else. And I'm getting more and more to the point that crawling and climbing are probably the most important two sixth movements. If bad stuff comes down, being able to climb is very valuable in a flood. Being able to crawl is very valuable if you got to stay down. Those are the life-saving moves. Turkish get-ups would be in there, tumbling, rolling, all that other stuff. All the other exercises that came to your mind would be sixth movements. But what I noticed is, and is that the more loaded carries I did, it seemed to amp my two things, amp my work capacity. So the harder I did loaded carries, it seemed like the more throws I could get in without the drop-off having. And the second very weird thing, and I learned this from Stu's work, is what the loaded carries were building, it was building my stone. He has this concept called hammer and stone. Hammer is the kick, the, the block of the left leg when you're a right-handed thrower. It's that, it's that bam, okay? The stone is you. And the problem a lot of athletes have is they have a big, a big strike, a big hit, a big, they, they hit the ground hard, and then their body goes, whoa, 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 wobbles a bit. What I notice with people who do a lot of loaded carries is when you push them, they don't get pushed. They've got a better stone, if that makes sense to you. And I, I can go in more depth if you like. I'd be, I'd be happy to. And no, I'm going to. Okay. So I break the stone training into three parts. The first is what I call anaconda strength, and that's internal pressure. If you ever get a chance to do a Highland Games and turn the caber, one of the things you're going to discover is that you have to run with this. Uh, I did, uh, I've done a 185-pound caber. So you're running with this 185-pound 185 vertical object running with it, and your body has to push out against it like an inner tube. We call that anaconda strength. And you build that with basically heavy bag carries and a few other things. It teaches your body internal pressure. And then there's armor building, which if you've ever wrestled or played any contact sport, the first couple of days you're in there, your skin, you just get bruised all the time. And then pretty soon it's gone. And I train armor basically with tumbling and also with double kettlebell cleans, having something hit your body. And the third area, the third A of stone is arrow an arrow is turning yourself into an arrow. And that would be planks and basically deadlifts. So to me, the loaded carry family makes your stone harder and also increases your, your work capacity without having... My concern about increasing the discus throw's work capacity, having throw 12 throws this week, 80 throws next week, 120 throws is that very few things happen linear like that when it comes to technique. So I'd rather build your work capacity with something that doesn't look remotely like throwing. And yet you, you're able to have more quality throws, more quality dives, more quality pitches or whatever it is. So another important aspect of training that people overlook is recovery. Yeah. What, what's your philosophy towards recovery? Well, let's start with the one that I, let's start with the ones I can't make any money. On, right. Okay. <laughs> Sleep. Okay. This is why I hate, I, I do these workshops and my wife will be there like, you know, you're never going to make a dime in this business. And I know. Number one is sleep. 
So that's why I, I, I really emphasize, and I noticed, you'll notice I emphasized it earlier today, that the importance of the sleep, what we call sleep hygiene, that's what I tell the, the, the special forces guy. We call it sleep hygiene because they have their own issues. But with my athletes, I call it sleep ritual. I want you to imagine a dog. You know how your dog starts making those little circles before they lay down to go to sleep? I'm trying to get my athletes to think about sleep as a ritual. So I don't know what you guys think about blue blocking glasses. I'm a big fan of them. You know those? They're not very expensive now, but they, they take the blue out of the computer screen and the TV set. There's a show called Game of Thrones, and I watched an episode with the blue blockers on, and then I pulled it all up, just slid them up my eyes about halfway through. I couldn't believe the difference in how my body responded to the show. So whether you turn the TV off at 8 or turn the computer down at 8, and i tell you one thing, if you could just sip hot water with lemon and read a good book when the sun goes down, no TV, no, and just start to wind yourself down. I find heat with an ice shower to be very helpful for my sleep ritual. Your bed should be, you should spend good money on a mattress. Uh, you should darken your room as dark as you can. Keep it as reasonably cool as you can. And throw your arms around quality sleep. If you're an athlete, you're not getting eight or nine, you're crazy. And I also tell my athletes, boy, if you can teach yourself to fall asleep, uh, there's a book called by Bud Winters called Relax and Win. I think you'd like this book. From what I've read on your website, Relax and Win, it's about how he trained the World War II fighter pilots to fall asleep on command, to take naps anytime. It, I think it would do very well on your website. So first comes sleep. And then number two is another one I'm not going to make a ton of money on. Um, now, I'm not a water psychopath, but many of my athletes are, they make themselves dehydrated with the soda pop or the, the ca caffeinated products that they drink. And there's so many of them now. And then those weird little drinks they show up with that they come in aluminum, neon covered, colored aluminum cans that have names like monster and neon and i'm very concerned about that but they're not getting enough water water now i'm not going to tell you to drink a gallon of water a day i there's no research that proves that any amount is better you shouldn't be thirsty we know that but i do think athletes need to really be better about water you know a lot of people are making fun of tom brady's new book the tv 12 method i bought it i read it i liked it oh that's an odd thing i do by the way I don't comment on something until I read it or try it. I think that's appropriate. And he, he really pushes water a lot. I'm, I mean, I, I, I applaud that, you know. I, so for me, sleep, sleep first. Water is right there with it. And then from there, I think you have to dedicate yourself to a, a recovery protocol that fits your pocketbook, it fits your lifestyle. I don't like my athletes foam rolling in during training, but I sure like you foam rolling when you're watching TV. I have a hot tub. I have a sauna in my home. In the summer, I have an ice shower outside. I live in Utah. You can't use it any other time of year. So I have made a financial commitment to recovery, but I'm 
but you, what I, you need to do now, you know, like this TB12 book has self massage as a big part. John Jerome's book, that great book, Stain Supple, not only had self massage, but these nice gentle stretches that you could do, but you've got to, I think you need to plan some level of recovery into your life. So for me, because of the resources I have, <laughs> my wife and I, we call it Ma Spa. Okay, so we have an electronic massage bed called a Megan bed. So you take a Megan while you're Meganing, you you crank up the sauna, you know. You then you so you take this electronic massage, which is very calming. You you take a hot sauna, and then you take an ice shower, and you can repeat it as much as you want or not, whatever. So I'm a big believer in it, but you also have to reflect on how much you. Now, if you're you're not doing, I mean, if you're struggling. The best uh, roller I've ever find a nice thick PVC pipe and cut a section off of it. It'll cost you. <laughs> you well, if you have a friend, it's free, or uh, it just you know use that for a roller. Self massage is pretty cheap. Uh, there's a great section in the book uh, in Dan Millman's uh, Warrior. Uh, the book is Warrior, uh, Peaceful Warrior book, where he and Socrates uh, they 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 go through. They try to put their thumb and fingers between every bone and muscle in their body. And they suggest doing that, you know, about for a week, once a year or something like that. So yeah, big believer in recovery, but it has to fit your pocketbook, has to fit your, your goal set. And, and, and at the same time, uh, has to fit your, you know, you don't want to be too crazy. You know, you <laughs> like for us, you know, if I'm hot tubbing with a, with a nice glass of red wine, uh, on paper, that's recovering, but really it's also just having a nice time. Well, Dan, this has been a great conversation. There's so much more we could talk about. Where, where can people go to learn more about your work? Um, I got a website called danjohn.net. And then also too, uh, you can buy my books at OTP on target publishing when, and Larie Draper, if, you guys should do something about her husband is Dave Draper, who was Mr. Universe, and he was on the Beverly Hillbillies show. Larie and Dave have have been wonderful. They've they've changed my life, so I can't thank them enough. On Target, uh, you can read books by uh, Greg Cook and DVDs with Mark Chang. I mean, it's it's a real interesting site. Lots of bodybuilding stuff from Dave and Mike Boyle's work is there. I'm convinced that uh, On Target Publishing is 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 kind of that hidden little leader in our fitness industry. And I say hidden leader because I don't think people appreciate the the honesty of the site. None of us has magic wands, you know? And none, none of us gives the fairy dust out. You don't if you follow my point. You know, we're all we're all pretty realistic, you know. Which is unusual. I mean, there's I don't I don't think any of the books have the F bomb in it, you know. I think they're just <laughs> <laughs> real coaches tell, giving you real answers. Well, Dan John, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. This has been fantastic. And again, I I shout out the art of manliness at every opportunity I can. I I think you guys are doing a wonderful service for us, uh, not only on the internet but in the real world too. Thank you. Well, thanks. I really appreciate that. My guest today was Dan John. He is the author of several books. They're all available on Amazon.com. You can find more information about his work at danjohn.net. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash danjohn, where you can find links to resources where you delve deeper into our conversation.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you've got something out of it since you've been listening, I'd really appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. If you've already done that, thank you. And just, you know, go share the podcast with some friends. It's the best way to get the word about the show. The more, the merrier around here. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.